Good morning again. My name is Wally. I am the lead pastor today, and we continue in our series called The Fallout. Uh, The first half of the summer, we looked at ways that we can draw closer to God, good things we can do, spiritual disciplines uh, through the series Shop Tools. And now, over the last few weeks and leading up to Labor Day, we are looking at the do-nots in the Ten Commandments that help us to know what we shouldn't be. And I want to begin where Walter began a couple weeks ago, in the Garden of Eden. God created, he wanted to create, he wanted to be in relationship with his creation. And as Walter talked, it was a great setup. Man and wife, Adam and Eve, were at peace. They were at harmony. They were at harmony with God. Uh, Some scholars even think that God walked with them in the garden. Everything was perfect until Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at that point, uh, being twisted by the serpent and their own desires to be like God, they broke the relationship with God. And there was animosity among them, and it was just the beginning of the fallout of sin in the world. Luckily for us, our God is a God of grace and hope, and he chose to move close again. Even though he drove them out of this perfect place that he made, he drew close. Uh, When he decides to destroy his creation and use Noah as the new Adam, he's close. When, or sorry, Noah, when Noah and his descendants get all messed up and try to make a big city and to look into the place of God, God is still close, even though he scatters them and starts a new relationship with this nobody named Abraham. All the way through the Bible, we see God being close to his people. And the culmination of that in Exodus is God bringing his people out of slavery and wanting to write his name on them, to call him his treasured possession, his royal priesthood. Uh, We see that in Exodus 19, the conversation he has. We talked about that a few weeks ago that Moses goes up on the mountain and God says, this is what's going to happen. This is what I want to challenge the people to do. And all the people say yes. And so the Ten Commandments really are God defining them of who they are going to be, what they're going to look like, how they're going to be different from the world. And he starts off, uh, as Walter talked about, um, no other gods before me. I'm the only God you have. I'm the one that shapes you. You'll not have any graven images, because if you make an image of a cow, which we saw before earlier with Aaron and the people, you get yourself in trouble and you're not faithful. Uh, You'll take my name uh, and hold it holy. You won't take it in vain, because even my name is holy just as I am. You're going to honor the Sabbath. Time is shaped around me because I made it so that you know that I am your God. You're going to honor your father and mother because they created you, because I allowed them to create you, and that is good. And then last week we hit 
The really hard things, don't murder, which on the surface is pretty easy. I've never murdered anybody. But uh, as Jesus expounds on that in the Sermon on the Mount, and as the scholars in the Bible times, it wasn't just murder. It was everything that goes along with that, anger and rage. And the whole idea is that you are at harmony with your neighbor because your neighbor is created by God. He is part of that royal priesthood, that holy nation. So then we get to the next one, which is uh, uh, every time Walter says, hey, we're going to, I'm going to give you something to preach. It feels like he always gives me the hard ones. So uh, today you shall not commit adultery. Again, on the surface, pretty easy to do, but the Israelites knew that it was more. They knew that it was bigger. And just like in the idea of murder, the fallout from adultery and sexual sin is catastrophic. I can count probably on more than one hand friends that I've had that have allowed their lives to drift, that have wrecked their marriages, that have wrecked their ministries. Um, If I were to say, hey, a show of hands of people that you know, Everybody probably knows somebody who's wrecked their life because of some sort of a sexual sin. And so for us to reflect on that and to think about what God is calling us to do and to be is a good thing. It's not easy, but it's the right thing. And luckily for us, we have this character named David, uh, who is a king of Israel And David has some bright and shining moments, and then he has some really lowly moments. And we're going to look at one of his lowly moments today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 11, or if you have your phone, stop playing games, flip over to your Bible app, go to 2 Samuel 11, or it will be on the screen. Uh, The story is told really well, so we're going to read and stop and read and stop here for the next few moments. So this is what happens. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men in the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. He didn't go and do what he was supposed to do. He stayed at home. That's the first problem. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. He sent her a Snapchat. (laughs) And the man came back and he said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of wife of Uriah the Hittite. And at that point, David should know she is off limits. But he's the king. He can do what he wants. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. And we really don't know if she came begrudgingly or if it was, oh, the king has called me. Um, We don't know. But she came They did what was wrong, and then she went home. And a little bit later, the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I 
and pregnant. Fallout. Trouble. David is king of the people of Israel who live up to these Ten Commandments and have this God who calls them to be faithful is a sham. So what does David do? Does he confess? Does he make things right? Nope. So David sent his word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was. You know, a little small talk. Hey, Joe, how, how was Job? How, how's the war going? Is everything okay? Making nice. And then David says to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Go home, clean up, spend the evening with your wife. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. In other translations, the gift of the king says a gift of meats. Go home, wash your feet, sleep with your wife, and I'll provide the buffet afterwards, and all will be good because while you don't know it, you're going to cover up my sin. David doesn't realize that Uriah is the faithful one, and... The writer tells us, but Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's service, and he did not go into his house. At this point, when David finds out, he begins to freak out. David was told Uriah did not come home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah responds to David, the ark, the ark of the covenant, the place where God resides in the temple and in the tabernacle, the holiest of things where Israel looks to for the presence of their God. The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live... I will not do such a thing. Good on Uriah. Uh, David, fallout's going to get real, real, real bad. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and at David's invitation, he got him drunk. He got him slobbering drunk, trying to get him to go home and sleep with his wife. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he didn't go home. Time for plan C, David says. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, the leader and commander of his armies, and he sent it with Uriah. Think about that. He sent Uriah's death wish with Uriah to Joab. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And that's what happened. Joab put Uriah out in the front next to the city wall, and Uriah was killed. And Joab sends a messenger back to David to say, let him know that Uriah is dead. He may get angry because a few more people died in the in the process, but 
Let him know that Uriah is done and all will be good. And this is David's response back. Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. At this point, you realize that David is probably breathing a giant sigh of relief. You wonder if he has any remorse sleeping with Bathsheba or lying about it or having Uriah killed. And then, you're, then we learn about Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead. She mourned for him, and after a time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And if we were to make a list of David's failures, it's pretty dastardly. Uh, Lust, pride, power, greed, lying, selfishness, murder, lack of a spiritual focus, lack of being and doing what he is to be and do as the king of Israel. And it's easy to go, wow, look at what David did. He's a terrible person. And when it comes to sexual sin, we're really good at that. But if we're to be honest and talk about the trouble that we get in, the lust we have, uh, the pride and power that feeds into that, maybe the revenge that drives that, or selfishness or laziness listening to the world, uh, a lack of spiritual focus. And again, this isn't a comprehensive list, but if we pause and we realize that what God is telling Israel in his little ten words is a pretty broad thing, we have to really look deep at ourselves and go, okay, what's God saying to me? And luckily, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something about adultery. He says, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And he's calling out all of the crowd that's there to listen to him Uh, You shall not commit adultery. They know this. They know it means, and they've sort of defined it as one little thing, and Jesus is going to blow them up. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The look is no less worse than the act, because your heart is your soul. It's everything you are, and if you've looked, you've failed. He goes on even more. If your right eye, your good eye, the eye that if you're a, if you're a, um, a warrior, it's the eye that you sight down the bow. It's your dominant eye. It's what makes your aim good. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, your right hand, your righteous hand, because in the Middle East back in the day and even now, your left hand was your bathroom hand, and you didn't extend that to anybody because it was unclean. But your right hand, your good hand, if it causes you to stumble, chop it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose 
one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. And, and those are, that's some language we see in the Old Testament. And I would guess that in Jesus' day, you didn't see many people walking around with one eye gouged out or their right hand cut off. Jesus is being very figurative here to help his people to know this is serious, serious stuff. Even today, uh, we as the church, we as the people of God, you know, I've never met anybody who cut their left arm off or their left hand off or gouged out their eye. So we are either living pure or we're not necessarily dealing with the sin. Paul, Paul has some fun things to say too. So Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, which is in Corinth, which is in Greece, which is a hotbed of anything goes. And the Corinthian church got distracted by that. Um, And so this is what Paul says to them, chapter 6, verse 12. You say, I have the right to do anything. Sounds a lot like the world today to me, but it's not beneficial. You say, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. And then a saying from the Greeks themselves, you say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both, i.e., Food is a temporary thing. Food makes me function. It has no religious oomph. They thought that way about sex, too. Uh, But Paul says, "Mm, nope. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. It's not just your heart and your soul, but it's your body as you exist as God's people here and now. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. But you all, you don't know that all your bodies are members of Christ himself. You're an arm, you're a hand, you're a finger, you're an, you're an eyebrow. It's, you are a part of God. Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Went one too many. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, where the two will become one flesh. Reflecting back to Genesis where it says, a man will leave his mother and his father and he will be bound to his wife. There's a union and they are one. So his response, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you all not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? You're the place where he resides here and now. Not just you individually, but you all. Are you not, or you all are not your all's own. And I put all, all the you all's and y'all's in there because it helps me to know that it isn't just Paul speaking to one person. It's Paul speaking to the entire community. You were bought with a the price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies.
And so this is what it comes down to. God defines who we are sexually. He showed Israel what he called them to be. And if you look at all of the different sins that are listed, all the sexual sins, uh, the only one that is good is husband and wife. And he calls us to be faithful to his desire. And to say that is not an easy thing, but it's the right thing. And so now the question becomes, what do we do with that? Because, like I said earlier, it's really easy not to do the worst, worst, worst things. But Jesus says the littlest thing is an out, and so how do we deal with the sin? And so these are the ways that in my head as I thought through sort of where somebody might be today. This is how we gouge out. This is how we cut off, and this is how we flee. First and foremost... Get apps off your phone and don't go to the dark places of the internet. Uh, Run away from the TV. The world is so saturated and so driven, it is almost impossible to not see this or that. Change your habits. Um, Take the bad things and do good things. Fill your life with God, spiritual disciplines. Do the shop tools things that we talked about the first half of this summer. Read your Bible more. Read the passages that talk, that talk about sexual sin to begin to frame your brain in the right way. Spend time in nature. Allow God to draw you in and fill the time that you get lost in dark corners with light. Work on your relationships, good and bad. Maybe there's a relationship that's a little bit over the line. And you need to stop that and you need to break that relationship. Maybe it's simply the fact that you need to work on your relationship with your spouse or your friends so that you're a better human. And then the last two, which are the hard two, confess to someone your struggles. You know, if you need to make a phone call this week and we need to sit down over coffee, I'm more than happy to do that. Um, there's no judgment. Uh, we will simply listen and encourage you as Jesus encourages the woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more. Or find a Nathan, an accountability partner. The nice thing about David is God saw worth in David and so he sent his prophet Nathan to him to call him out. So Nathan shows up to David and says, David, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you about this guy who has everything he needs. He has all the sheep he needs. He has all the lambs he needs. He's wealthy and he is good. Then there's also this other man, but he's poor. He has one little lamb, but he loves that little lamb. That little lamb is like a daughter to him. And the rich man had somebody come along to visit, and rather than take from his own stock his many, 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 he goes to the poor man, and he takes his lamb, and he slaughters him, and he feeds it to his guests. And at this point, David is furious. This is so wrong. That man is wrong. And Nathan looks at him and goes, David, that is you. 
And if you read Psalm 51, David's heart is changed and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And it's from that point forward that he gets his act together again. And God continues to use him because he repented and he changed his ways. A little bit later in the story, you see that Joab said, hey, I'm right here at this city. Get out here and be the king that you need to be or I'm going to take this in my own name. And David goes out and he, be, he is the king that he is called to be. So the question for us is, how do we be faithful? How do you need to change your life? Maybe you're just barely over the line and maybe you don't have struggles. I don't know. I'm a guy and I know the conversations that go on in my head. Um, I was in youth ministry. I know the struggles that young adults have. Um, so to stand up here and say that, oh, don't commit adultery. It's, it's not a problem for us. Uh, it's, it's a problem. So what do you need to do so that you can own and live and be the children of God, his royal priesthood, his holy nation? We're going to take time to celebrate communion where God shows us his love and willingness to draw near that he sends his son to die for us on a cross. And as we eat that piece of bread and as we drink that juice, we know that he is faithful and that he is willing to wash away our sin and make us new. So I'm going to pray and we're going to move. And like I say, if, if you need to make a phone call or catch an elder in the back today, uh, let's deal with our sin and move forward so that we can be who God has called us to be. Lord, I thank you that you are good. I pray that you're over us as we uh, talk about hard things, as we journey through your scripture, as we look at what you've called your people to do and to be. And may you help us to be humble. May you help us to listen. And may your spirit challenge us as a people to move towards you and to deal with with our sin. Show us that you are good and allow us to be graceful to one another so that we can show the world that we are shaped by you, that we are your kingdom and that the world is the world. We thank you for your sacrifice of your son on the cross so that we could have this hope so that we can deal with our darkness. As we eat today, help us to be light. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, if you'll stand. <laughs>